1: Hello, TSF family, and welcome to Episode 7, Season 4 of This Spiritual Fix, where today we're going to be talking to Jeff Brown about matriarchal spirituality. This is the interview that really challenged us to think a little bit differently. Enjoy. Enjoy. This spiritual fix: Two mystical mamas hacking the self help game
2: with Anna Stromquist and Christina
0: Wildsay. Hey, Christina,
1: how are you today?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm. I am. I feel honored and privileged today that we have on with us the prolific author, spiritual. Spiritual man, spiritual person, (laughs) everyone's spiritual, so it's kind of interesting, given the conversation, that that was what came to my mind. Jeff Brown. And I'm going to give you guys an intro for Jeff Brown. Jeff was born in Toronto, Canada, and after years of doing the successful thing, the what you're supposed to do thing, including law school, excelling scholastically, and about to start his own law practice, he heard a little voice inside his head telling him to stop. And after much resistance, which is something that we can all probably relate to, he honored his calling and he took off on a quest to find his sacred purpose. And part of this quest included a master's in psychology, being a bioenergetics practitioner, among many other things. And one of the things about Jeff that I've seen by reading his books and listening to everything is that at the heart of these explorations, he's got this diligent commitment to inner work, but an inner work that is different than what we're used to in a lot of different ways, and different to kind of the the mainstream spirituality that we see that is more detached. He went on to self-publish the first edition of his first book, which is called Soul Shaping Adventures in Self-Creation in December of 2007, which was later picked up by Random House. And he has since been prolific in his offerings, including the viral blog Apologies to the Divine Feminine from A Warrior in Transition, the film Carmageddon, which includes interviews with Ram Das, Bhagavan Das, among others. And he has since written Ascending with Both Feet on the Ground, Love It Forward, An Uncommon Bond, Spiritual Graffiti, and most recently articulations. All of this has culminated in the foundation of a new model called Grounded Spirituality. And you can find him in print as well as take his courses at the Soul Shaping Institute online. So welcome, Jeff. We're so happy to have welcome. you on Spiritual Fix.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you on the spiritual fix.
1: <laughs> so I would love to start off with this question because I kind of alluded to it in your intro is, you know, one of my favorite quotes from from articulations was you talk about enrealment versus embolshitment, right? Of this idea that like, and you talk about enrealment. In past podcasts, I've talked um, with Anna about this need to kind of figure out what is the, the mother's lineage of, realization, right? And I was like, it's not enlightenment, it's endarkenment, and that's the one I want to do. So can you kind of expand for our listeners and really help us understand like what you mean by enrealment and kind of what is the basis for this model?
2: Well, I think it it was primarily subjective and experiential. You know, I started with talk therapy and then body-centered psychotherapy. Alexander Lowen, the co-founder of Bioenergetics, was my therapist for a time. And I didn't really know anything about this thing called spirituality. I was really into psychology. I mean, I knew about the journey of the soul because I had spent sort of years trying to figure out what mine was. But in terms of, you know, what I now call patriarchal spirituality or the new cage movement, I hadn't really any awareness of that until I ended up with Bhagavan Das living in my house and, and shooting Carmageddon. So for me, my experience was that, I found the most expansive consciousness, the most unified consciousness, the most non-dual consciousness, the most everything consciousness in the heart of the everything. I didn't find it by detaching from my pain body. I didn't find it from turning my story around like Kooky, Byron, Katie. I didn't find it by practicing vipassana which i came to call bypassana i really really had the experience of this thing that i call spirituality which i defined really as reality in the heart of my physical and emotional body and in the way that i then intersected with everything outside of myself so i would go into a session with Loan beforehand and feel sort of separateness in my consciousness go into my body, release emotional holdings, rage, tantrum, cry, whatever it is I needed to do. And at the end of it, I would walk outside and feel unified. And so I didn't need to put on fancy clothes and change my name and hang out in Tibet and do any of those things in order to find my experience of wholeness, which I came to call realment. I define spirituality really as reality. So The most truly spiritual person is the one who's in the greatest number of threads of reality within their consciousness at one time and as i began to explore what we've been calling spirituality particularly the patriarchy very conveniently it seemed to be a very singular threaded consciousness they were masters of meditations they were masters always masters of something because men love being masters and and yet every other part of their life was a shit show so you know, the term enrealment, it was first enrealment and soul shaping, then the editor at North Atlantic, we switched to it's like enrealment, felt easier and better. And it's kind of kitschy, but I feel like it says, you know, everything I want to say. And now that we see how much trouble our species is in, it seems that much more imperative that we look at reality through an enrealed lens rather than an enlightened lens, because we need to be here for all of this in order to be able to do something to change it. Yeah.
1: I love that. I love that in particular. Anna, you were laughing when he was talking about that. Yeah. Vipassana. Yeah. When, uh, could you go sorry a little bit? If,
2: sorry about no, no, that. No. I mean,
0: we, met, we met at a vipassana. Yeah. Um, I
2: mentioned
1: that when we first came on before
0: we yeah, started recording. So, yeah. So, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about why vipassana is bypass bypassing that?
2: So, I mean, it's, I mean, of course, any practice can be helpful on the path to wholeness. But when they start selling it as the royal path to the kingdom of God which is what many so-called male masters in the spiritual world refer to meditation as I think they're deeply misleading us I get why men like stillness and silence because sound and movement bring up all their unresolved stuff and I remember for me it was more I went to an inside an opening workshop with Jack Kornfield, who was a so-called Vipassana master and Stan Groff who was the holotropic breathwork guy and I had been with Lowen so I kind of had a different lens so I we start with Jack and Jack tells all these soft sweet lovely stories and you know they're very lovely but all I see when I look in his eyes is rage and I was studying with Lowen so I'm like what's really going on with this guy I mean is he really all calm and realized and softy toffee like that or is there a whole shitload of stuff that he hasn't moved through yet and for my for me, sitting with him and watching all of these caffeinated westerners getting out of their cars at the Governor Dummer Academy in Massachusetts and trying to like find their way to some peaceful place seemed ridiculous because we hadn't gone into the body. we hadn't right. discharged the cultural holdings. we hadn't discharged the other holdings, so just sort of witnessing the sensations, noticing being with the sensations was. It felt like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So then I had a really profound holotropic breathwork experience that was remarkable with Stan Groff, and went outside and sat in front of these bulrushes that seemed so separate for me when I was just engaging with Jack stuff. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was in a unified consciousness because I had discharged my holdings, created space inside to actually be present for the moment, and cleared the emotional debris that was getting in the way. And I just started to see many people I knew that were engaging in Vipassana on a regular basis. They, on some level, seemed uh, to have achieved some level of mastery, but many other parts of their lives were a complete and utter shit show. And that is fundamental to patriarchal spirituality. It it splits our humanness from our sacredness in its effort to avoid the unresolved and difficult nature of the human experience. And for me, any practice that does that if you do too much of it is fundamentally a bypassing practice.
0: Right. Osho said that in the East, East, which is more matriarchal, right? They can jump into Vipassana, but he highly suggested that in the West people go through catharsis first before going into Vipassana so I, I I agree with that because i I feel like mm. I did a lot of cathartic work before going into Vipassana, but I could see how it could just get you kind of stuck. Do you think well, I mean,
2: it- I mean, if the goal Anna sorry, if the goal is to become naturally meditative, right? like I assume that's the goal that we're that's somehow posited as the ultimate state of Nirvana or something where you ultimately become Brahman and don't have to be here anymore, then the question is, how does one get naturally meditative? And my view is you get naturally meditative through discharging your holdings and energizing your body and clearing your debris so Mm -hmm. that you're naturally grounded, vibratory, fluid, and self-possessed. To me, that's being naturally meditative. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you.
0: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think, you know, the Vipassana tradition is very, very, very rigid and very rule-based. And I would like to think that that's because to conform to the masses and to make kind of make sure the masses get on track they have to set up a very systematic thing but then ultimately as you as you kind of get through more stuff you become more free and less attached to that I don't know it's like they had they had to create a very strict structure to protect the the system in the beginning but hopefully people don't stay there
2: to control the populace right I don't, I don't have such a benevolent perspective <laughs> on what these dudes were up to. I really believe this was about the unhealthily egoic need to be the master. Okay. I believe it was about the need to control the audience for all kinds of financial and other reasons, containment and control. And to me, these are just traditional patriarchal manipulation structures. The silly clothes, the name changing, all of it is is just this ridiculous shtick that gets codified and passed off as enlightenment when in fact really in most cases it's just a reflection of people who haven't worked through their material. Because if you've worked through your material you certainly might engage in meditative practice but you won't only engage in meditative practice. It'll be one tool in your toolbox on your movement or march towards wholeness and any system that tells you that this one particular way of engaging, we know this from religion already, mm-hmm. is primarily, I believe, just a control structure.
1: It's interesting you say that. because
2: They got I, you where they want you. Yeah, yeah That's why you can't judge, you can't be anger, angry, and you can't gossip in those spiritual worlds. So when I started to do The Ground of Spirituality before the book came out, I've got hundreds of threatening emails, usually from Buddhists who were enraged at me for daring to critically review spirituality. They're fine with politics, religion, every other part of society, but God forbid you critically review Eckhart Tolle. Why is that? I mean, these spiritual teachings lead billions of people often in dangerous directions. It is so important that we're allowed to critically review them, but these systems were set up brilliantly so that nobody could gossip, nobody could get angry, and nobody could critically review them. What a setup. Mm.
1: Interesting. It's interesting you say that too, because a lot of the people I work with individually, you know, I ask them about what their practice is on a regular basis. And they're like, well, I try and meditate. And I'm always just like, most of the people I talk to are neurodivergent. Most of them have all sorts of other things going on. And I'm just like, you got to break free of that one thing. Like, it's so, so important that there are so many other different ways of doing things. Like when Anna taught me about dynamic meditation, or... Feeling it or doing like all of those different things. There's so many different versions of what meditation is that is not necessarily sitting down and just being mindful.
2: And uh, well, well, if we're, yeah. it, I mean, what's a spiritual practice? I mean, it depends how we define spiritual. I mean, if we define spiritual pra- spiritual as being in a meditative stupor, then that's the appropriate spiritual practice. But if we define spiritual as being present for all aspects of the human experience, what I could call it realment, then anything that brings you more deeply into an experience of the moment presence as a whole being experienced is a spiritual practice. This is a spiritual practice. Eating donuts can be a spiritual practice. I mean, what are we even talking about? We don't even talk about what we're talking about. I mean, we just (laughs) throw this word spiritual around like, Oh yeah. Like we all know what we mean. Well, do any (laughs) of us know what we fucking mean? Like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a more sacred experience of reality? And are we saying that we can't find that in the heart of daily life? Does that even make sense? I mean... Yeah. None of it makes sense. I mean, sure, if you don't do any shadow work, if you don't excavate any of your stuff, if you don't clear any of the (laughs) ancestral debris, it makes sense that the only place you can find peace is by jumping up and out of here. Transcendence or whatever they want to call it. Escapism. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the whole system. And I get that at certain points in time and certain cultural environments, maybe overpopulated environments, detachment becomes the only way you can psychologically and physiologically survive. But let's not call that the path of enlightenment. There's a sociological context for that, and so here we are in North America. What does it mean to be an enlightened being? What does it mean to be an unreal being? What's the spiritual practice? What What are we talking about for God's sakes? And they don't want to talk about the question of what they're talking about because they want the system right where it is. I don't because I I and not because I'm enjoying being a gadfly, but because I actually still have some small smidgen of faith in humanity and I would like to see us develop systems that uh, link presence and purpose. So presence isn't just pondering your navel for all eternity till you become Brahmin like a moron. Presence is getting really here for all of this and then finding your purpose in the heart of it and turning your attention to doing something to help the species. You know, there's this movie, was it like 2012 or 2010 with Kevin Costner? I don't know if you ever saw it. It was like an end of the world movie. And there's this amazing poster image for it where you see these, these Buddhists, like Tibetan Buddhists, that look like at the top of these mountains, like the Himalayas, in sort of meditative repose, like they're allegedly at peace or something. And But then you see the wave coming to kill them. And to me, it just puts... there's enrealment meets enlightenment meets enrealment like it's just so much perspective in that it's like yeah you think you've got it all figured out buddy well here comes the wave you know and if we can't withstand the wave and acknowledge the reality of the wave then I just don't think we're really here and I don't think if we're really here we can claim to be living spiritual lives
1: it's interesting you say that too because you know one of the things that I again talk about is a lot of people don't feel comfortable living in their fullness right For whatever reason, they got their they got their shit. They got they're going through their shadow work and things like that, and it's like and it's interesting because I can feel it in them that they're only trusting so much, right? They're not trusting in ninety eight percent of the situations, and then those two percent of the situations when they're with somebody who's spiritual with them, then they're like, okay, now I can trust, now I can open up, now I can be a whole thing, and it's just like you got to just like push against those barriers and just start to open and trust in a different way. Like obviously not to every situation, you need to stay safe, you know, within a physical context, but it's been really interesting in this journey to watch that in myself too, to see how the trust is really the limitation, like When you're in the masculine, when you're in the patriarchal spirituality, you don't have to trust fuck all. Like, you just have to look at your own mind. Like, there's no need to to be in the context of relational experience.
2: Yeah, it's not horizontal. It's vertical, right? It's higher than... You know, like as though we're like birds floating up above the human experience or something. And the best bird, the strongest bird, the bird that can sit in the cushion for longest is the most realized bird. And this whole uncomfortable and confusing horizontal plane of me and you and you and you and all of this, this is discarded, which is wonderfully convenient. I mean... You know, it's like that's the
0: juicy stuff.
2: Well, so yes, that's the that in every sense of the word is the juicy stuff. I mean, that's (laughs) that's that's exactly right. And well, you know, I mean, it's like I mean, the irony of these enlightenment models is, in a way, it's like they're saying that God or whatever Brahman or whatever they're using made a mistake by putting us in human form because. They define the most realized state as the one that's bereft of humanists, bereft of body, bereft of feelings, bereft of ego, bereft of story, and ultimately they're going to control their mind. So what the fuck are they now? I mean, they're not even human beings anymore. So for us to come back down into this chamber of trauma and work through all of this stuff to find a way to be here before we even think about here, outside here is an enormous, extraordinary, courageous, pioneering struggle. I mean, we're crossing the bridge from survivalism, and those enlightenment systems are just survivalistic. They're just trying to cope and deal with what's uncomfortable and put it away to an authentic way of being, which has to include the connection to and the healing of the emotional body, because there's no power of now if you're still in the power of then in your consciousness. So, Deadheart Tolle can talk all he wants about how he's enlightened and he's transcended his material, but all you have to do is listen to him talk, and you know the man's not even in his body. I mean, let's just get real. If that's enlightenment, I don't want nothing to do with it. And so for me, I'm looking for something alive. So Alexander Lowen would come in the office bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, grounded, energized, smart, and I said, okay, that's a little closer to what I'm after. And to me, that's real spirituality. You're here for all of it. You're not just here for the parts that feel good,
0: right? Right.
2: That's it. (laughs) Or why else
0: would you come to Earth if you're trying to escape the the diarrhea and the rage and the resentment and whatever?
2: Right. No. And and what's interesting is so whenever I attempted to play that other game, where you're sort of like you're no longer sort of tapping into your localized self, you're trying to find this sort of absolute self they talk about. But in the heart of the absolute self, I could never find a path or a purpose because essentially I was nullifying my individuated experience. Only when I came down into my story, cleared my – I mean, I, I had more glimpses of my callings in this lifetime after clearing emotional debris than I ever had sitting on the cushion trying to transcend my humanness. It's like there's there's nothing there for me. There's no realized state there's no purpose within the world itself. All it is is some kind of self fulfilling meditative prophecy. And, you know, it's very obvious that's not going to get us anywhere. I mean, if we don't see that now, we got a real problem.
1: I, I find it really interesting. Can you kind of expand? So, you know, one of the things that we've done in this past season is is to kind of understand, we've been looking kind of at Tantra, right? So obviously it comes from a thing, but this kind of understanding of the interplay of the masculine and feminine energies or the yin and yang or whatever you want to call it. And obviously Tantra was created as a spiritual, you know, a practice for everybody. It wasn't just for, you know, it wasn't supposed to be, it was supposed to be dirty and it was supposed to be all these different things. It wasn't supposed to be exclusionary to the experience of, of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? So to speak. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it's been interesting because, you know, as we've kind of explored the feminine a lot this season, I've really felt that the understanding of purpose, because I feel I feel as if purpose is a forward moving thing, <laughs> it feels more masculine in nature to me. So I'm really curious as to like, the sacred purpose, like, you know, how does the sacred purpose, which I feel is, and maybe I'm just categorizing it, how does that fit in the whole idea of more of a matriarchal experience? I mean,
2: amazing question. Amazing question. Uh, And I hope I have an amazing answer. So, um, so in that patriarchal system, the notion, the Tony Robbins Americana hyped up idea of purpose is very different from what I mean by sacred purpose. They were calling it divine purpose in the spiritual world and I didn't like it because why, you know, it's just another way that we The brilliance of the human form suddenly becomes something channeled through and about the divine. It's just another way of dissociating us from our own inherent value. So for me, sacred purpose wasn't just my calling to be a writer or the archetypal work that I was here to do, like from, say, a warrior consciousness to a more surrendered consciousness. It also included the relational field so wherever there's growth there's purpose for me so in the relational field with my particular soul pod of people that come along that are significant figures in my life people of resonance or people of soul significance That's fundamental to sacred purpose too, which is very traditionally feminine, right? It's a, it's relationally oriented growth and that's intrinsic to it. And all of this clearing of the emotional debris, all the shadow work the two of you are doing for me is fundamental to sacred purpose. Most people at this stage of human development, their sacred purpose is to get to work healing the trauma that they're carrying forward from their lives and from their ancestry. So sacred purpose is very broadly defined for me and includes wherever you inherently know you need to be in order to grow yourself one step closer to wholeness. So I think it's probably an integration of the gender constructs. Yeah.
1: I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. I have a question. We, we have our own bag of tricks to do ours. What is your, I guess, top two or three favorite methods for removing emotional debris?
2: Well, I'm very comfortable with anger. And so I have a foam cube from bioenergetics with a baseball bat that when i'm particularly enraged i sometimes take pictures of people i'm not happy about and i shred them like shred them like little monkeys with my baseball bat and so that's that was a very fundamental part for many years of my past i think just any form of emotional release for me is is i would say my primary spiritual practice it's clarifying it creates space inside for me to identify the next step on my path and to now have the energy to walk the path you know when you're all bunked up you don't have the energy for anything and what was the third one my third spiritual practice is going to the racetrack and betting on horses i've done so much work at the racetrack you know with respect to self-concepts i mean for me all the self-concept work is spiritual practice it's i don't even understand when they talk about spiritual practice as something separate from the selfhood Like it's some ridiculously floaty, silly thing. I don't even understand. I I did so much work at the racetrack because I would buy a daily racing form, which is the newspaper for the track before I'd go the day before. And I would study and figure out who are the horses I want to bet on. Okay, doesn't sound spiritual does it but it was, and then I would go to the track the next day and find that my confidence my intuition as Christina was discussing, with respect to who I was betting it would get knocked off by the favoritism of who the people were betting for. So. I did just so much work at reconfiguring and solidifying my trust in my own sense of self and intuition at the racetrack. And still, again, when I feel like I lose my way, I go back to the racetrack for that reason. And to me, that's a spiritual practice it's all a spiritual practice I love it yeah what what are we what are we talking about these dudes have told us some crazy story I mean I got to wear an outfit I got to have a name change I got to have a special holy book I got to do a particular exact practice I mean the entirety of life is a spiritual practice if you have the intention of living your life in a direction of moving towards wholeness to me it's absolutely a spiritual practice
1: it's really interesting. You say about how the favoritism of what's moving in, in, in like at the racetrack, right? Like you, that, that you, you want to keep what your... people think,
2: what people think. Right. Right.
1: Right. right. But I'm, I'm curious, is there, did you ever explore if I'm sure you did, but like, did you ever explore if like that in and of itself, was a spiritual flow that you could kind of tap into right that like what what the kind of group thinks and what the community thinks about something no
2: it's so interesting so this was exactly it i had this uncanny ability especially with i don't know if you've ever been to a racetrack but stakes races like high level like the derby like the bigger races i had this uncanny ability to intuitively sense what horse was going to win i wasn't right every time but i had i was good and Then I would go to the track and somebody else would be the favorite and people would be talking and there's, you know, everybody's talking about what horse to bet if you go with a group of people and that's when I would sometimes lose my way and often, not always, but often the horse that I intuitively sensed and could imagine being in the winner's circle would then win the race and I hadn't bet on the horse. So, so no group thing didn't get me too far. There was some other thing I was tapping into through my body. And through knowing a bit about the racetrack. I mean, it's, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I'd been a student of the racing forum for a long time, but yeah, it's an interesting practice.
1: It is. It is. Do you think that, that you are manifesting to use that word, which is definitely a new age term, a new as you would say a new cage term. Well, yeah,
2: I think I'm a pretty good little hue manifester, I would say, yeah, I think that I'm, I am, but it never happened to me just because I thought at first. It never happened to me just because I begged the universe. It never happened to me because I prayed. It always happened to me because I worked for it.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Cool. So a question that I have, you mentioned anxiety and depression. I think that a lot of our listeners, and I know I can probably relate to this too, can kind of feel feel that maybe they're trying to resolve, like in their shadow work, they're kind of trying to resolve anxiety or depression, right? Or that maybe it becomes a side side benefit to like kind of doing the work. Can you kind of explain what how you kind of see the relation between the work, the shadow work that you're doing and the anxiety and depression that people may experience?
2: Well, I mean, I see, I mean, some anxiety is justified in the particular, you know, right now, Ukrainians should be anxious in the situation that they're in. But for me, depression is interesting. For me, depression was i called it frozen feeling in my first book soul shaping and i know there's biological components and so people you know point that out to me but i just generally found it was and in my work with bioenergetics this seemed to be true that it's about feeling that needs to thaw out that's become armor or that's just become sort of congealed and there's no longer fluidity feeling juiciness right and movement as anna said and and so for me, the somatic psychotherapy work, in whatever form, whether it's somatic experiencing, bioenergetics, coronergetics, there's many and many more developing now, was key to all of that because of course, through the talk therapy model, I couldn't thaw out my feeling. I could only make some sense of it. Um, so I think for me, depression is frozen feeling and you have to go down into the trauma tunnels in order to excavate the material, release the material, find your voice again, regain the boundaries that were denied you because of horrible circumstances. And then once you become fluid and vital and alive, you know, you're know you more available to all kinds of experiences that can shift your emotional state. I used to watch Alexander Lowen was brilliant around depression because he said it's so complicated. There's not enough energy for us to get the person going to release the material. But if we can just find a technique to energize them to move enough of the material, After an integration phase, they start to feel less depressed, and so it's difficult to work with, but I think that you have to go into the body to actually be able to transform it. You have to.
1: I've definitely found something similar in that, like if someone's just at that low place, I I, I call it um, borrowing someone's sourdough starter, right? (laughs) Like if you don't have any sourdough, if you have no yeast... And if there's nothing growing in your body in terms of like joy or movement of that energy, yep. you have yep. to sometimes borrow somebody else's sourdough starter and nurture it, right? Because otherwise, it's like it's like it's just like everything's just like not working out there. So yeah, mm. I like that.
2: So for you two, your your focus has been on the mother wound. So what does that mean? What do you mean by that in relation to this question of spirituality? I guess that's my question. Just the way in which spirituality was co-opted by the patriarchy and den- denied the feminine or...
0: More, more like if we see... Well, more, more like if we see Mother as Maya and chaos and death and destruction and all the juiciness of life and... Cali- how, Calima. Yeah, and how we resist her and how in that very resistance of her, we cut ourselves off from deeper parts of ourselves yeah, because we want to, you know in the patriarchal world of like the, you know, the father, God worship kind of stuff. It's very about, you know, honor and obedience and justice
2: and mastery
0: and mastery and, And, and the mother, the cosmic mother is about chaos and surrender and loving and finding pleasure in all things, even the horrible things as bad as that may be. And so for us, it's been a lot about the personal mother, how our own relationship with our caregivers influences this, but also how our relationship with life has so much to do with how much we let the divine mother into our world, which is to let in chaos, to let in the unexpected that she can be.
2: Well, I feel like what you're sort of also saying is just to let in feeling.
0: And that too. Yeah. yeah. In
2: all the forms that feeling comes. Um, right,
0: right. And rather and rather than yeah.
2: trying to control feeling and contain feeling and discipline feeling and all and just,
0: that. yeah, just taking life how it comes every moment to moment, how it changes versus um putting everything in a box. That's yeah. kind of been our 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 mother journey.
1: Yeah, yeah. We it's 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 a really beautiful way of experiencing the world when you can do it, but it's been so fascinating to figure out too, like, you know, we do these episodes and, and like massive learning usually comes either before or as we're leading up and we're preparing for them. And like, it's been so fascinating for me to even just see how much that has evolved from, you know, listening to your books. And also, I feel like the mother is this amazing, has this amazing way of just of setting up all of the world's In such a way that it's like, now see this, now pay attention to this, now this one. I'm going to fuck you like this. (laughs) I I call her the miracle bitch because she's just like full of so many amazing miracles to help you get to understand something, to to expand your awareness of it, to help you process it, and then to maybe give you insights. But the the most important thing being increasing your awareness and processing all that stuff, like as you call them holdings, right? Out of your body. And- when you give her the, the, the recognition and the power, then she takes you on a fucking ride. Right. Like she's going to take you on a ride. Like, you know, and I, and
0: I think the more we've learned and, and it doesn't happen all the time, but like the more we've go with it, the more we realize how little in control we actually are that we, you know, those, those big, you know, those gurus say we are not the doers of action, but like, you really feel like I'm really not doing anything. It's all her through me, you know? I feel like yeah, that people you may or may not experience it depending you know, if listen to this podcast, you may or may not experience that but but to me, it's an awesome feeling when I'm just like it's all her moving through me and
1: and, and, it's, all,
2: and it's all you moving through her yeah so let's back to the honoring of the self the story of Anna Stromquist, you know
0: yeah see, I didn't see, I didn't think about that because I'm an asshole, but yeah. <laughs>
2: No. Um, she's funny the reason I say that is because I used to when I started looking at this thing that people were calling spirituality I wrote an uncommon bond I don't know if you've read that but it's really all a, primarily about synchronicity in the heart and all that and now I just kind of like I don't really feel like I'm so let's, let's say I write a piece or a quote that's kind of good and people go man Jeff Brown you are in the zone you are really channeling and I get offended I go well wait, wait a minute wait, wait, wait. I'm not channeling I worked like a dog to figure that thing out. Don't, don't attribute that to something outside of me moving through me. Why? why is another way we trivialize the human experience, everything brilliant, everything magnificent, everything wondrous has to be coming from outside of us. God forbid it should come from inside of us. What a thing.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, ultimately, right. I guess the deeper I go that it's all the same. Right. But, yeah, I guess I've been patriarchally brainwashed to
2: well, hate, well, hate well, mankind
0: sure. or whatever. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, we we've all been conditioned to believe that the greatest thing about us is something higher than you know it's out of this world. Wow, man, that was it's you know instead of well why why was that brilliant piece of was that brilliant insight or that brilliant relational experience? Why does any of this have to be? I don't get it. It's like we're working hard to evolve ourselves, to make ourselves whole, to become more present and purposeful. And the moment we land on something amazingly brilliant that comes out of us, it has to be attributed to something out of this world. And yeah, that's true. And I think this is exactly how we've been diminished, contained, shamed, shunned, guilted out, and controlled to serve a very small percentage of people in control.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting though too, cause to kind of like, my thought when you say that is that, you know, opinions are so king or queen, whatever, you, they're probably king, right? In the sense that it's just like, mm. everyone's like, I got my opinion and this is how I feel and this is the way that it is, right? And so by attributing it to something outside of us, we somehow can put authority on it, right? It feels like it's authority and it's not just your opinion As though somehow
2: our, our authority isn't good enough.
1: Right. Right. So like Anna and I even do it relationally in our podcast. Like we, the two of us have had like our relationship with each other has been forefront in some of our shadow work on the Mm -hmm. podcast. Right. Is like, how are we working through these different bits and pieces and how are Mm -hmm. we like recognizing each other's triggers and, and, and helping each other get through it. Right. Like get through our independent things and then get through our stuff together. And sometimes we just throw Archangel Michael in and when someone's like I feel like it's like our little thing like when someone's like hey Archangel Michael said this I'm like sweet that's what he said let's go with that like it just kind of somehow yeah it's nice it's a
2: little relief it's nice to have a little relief now and then and
1: then it's just not two people against each other so yeah I get what you're saying I get I definitely can agree with the fact that like I work my ass off for the vast majority of all of the insights that I have. And I know the it is <laughs> too, we like, we go, Yeah, you're working fucking, for it. Yeah. We go through the mire to get to that place. Right. Yeah.
2: So it's yours. Okay. And how beautiful <laughs> is that? And how beautiful is that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, that's it's all one, like Dumbo's
0: feather. I always like, I love the analogy of them. Dum- Did you remember Dumbo the movie where he could always fly, but he thought it was the magic feather and then he loses the feather and, and they're like, oh, you, know, you could yeah. always fly. Oh, so maybe
2: that's that's the same thing
0: yeah so maybe all this spirituality is just the feather
2: i think most of what we've been calling spirituality is just the feather it's the tip of the iceberg and it's very distracting and and very bypass oriented you know i mean i think the wisdom of the feminine is has to be brought into our notion of spirituality because excluding that means excluding the entire tenor of the feeling experience which to me is the nature of life you know I mean thoughts are helpful and useful but really you know it's for me it's all about how do I feel and means a whole lot more to me than anything else so yeah yeah yeah
1: Yeah. and I think there is space in that also for ritual right that's kind of that's where that's where I came from in a lot of ways is I came from my first experience with all of a lot of it beyond vipassana so the more kind of matriarchal experience was with the crone group right and I was, you know, 30 years younger than everybody in the group, but they kept inviting me back and like, you know, taking me under their wing to show me the ritual and the ritual always involved emotion. It always enjoyed mm-hmm. feeling. There was a lot of sacredness to it. There was a lot of, we're moving this way and we're going to do this first, and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. Right. But ultimately it always had catharsis or it always had some sort of release and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful sacredness to it right that it could still be it felt spiritual in that sacredness and the actual doing of the ritual
2: nice i think the way i think about ritual is that i'm not interested in sort of a some religious or spiritual sect sort of feeding me my rituals i would like my rituals to emanate from my individuated life experience something that has meaning for me in particular that's organized around and emanates from what i've lived in this lifetime so it's it's not generic ritual it's not the ritual that everybody is doing in a church on sunday it's it's the ritual that is christina it's the ritual that is anna it's it's jeff's ritual it's a reflection of your polyphrenic soul your multi-aspected soul and all of the encoded wisdom and directionality that lives within this organism and and that keeps that organism going more and more in the direction of wholeness and integration and Yeah. Yeah. Good. What's wrong with that? You know, it's like, can't it all be unique to us? I mean, how empowering is that to make it all unique to us?
1: Yeah. And some, I mean, the, I can't tell you how many people tell me how scared they are of that because they think they're not doing it right or they think they're in danger.
2: Yeah, right. Right. It's so another scary. perfect control system, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you just got to keep doing it till you do it right, until the master tells you you do it right, and all the rest of that. If you let that all go and just find your own rituals that emanate from your own life story, you, know, you don't have to worry about anybody marking you. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're walking in your own two feet, which I think is... Desperately necessary at this stage. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, thousands of years. I mean, how many people have you met that are truly self-possessed, truly individuated, truly integrated with respect to their humanness and their sacredness, truly fight walking their callings and their offerings on a very deep and conscious level. How many people? Two, 10, 12? I mean, wow. Yeah.
1: When you did Carmageddon and when you spoke with those, when you spoke with Ram Das and Bhagavan Das, obviously he lived with you, as you mentioned before, would you say that those masters were embodied?
2: <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't say that they were masters. I spent a uh, part of two days in Maui with Ram Das alone, telling him he's a spiritual bypasser, and at the end of it, he admitted it. So, no, I think that I think they were working a shtick, you know, I think that they were north american guys with father issues who really wanted to believe that there was this indian master that had selected them specially to bring this brilliant message to the world and there's always wisdom in everything i mean that's why it's tricky so you know and das said a lot of really wise things but yet had absolutely no integrity in every other part of his life he was known for that and that's why the movie went in the direction that it did for me believing in him to me not believing in him and you know, I think that most of the people around Ram Dass are emotionally very shattered individuals, and I don't believe those particular teachings are really a path back into the body. I mean, he really believed his name was Ram Dass, but his name was actually Richard Alpert. So these are bypass practices that were framed as the great grandpa wisdom, and people believed it or didn't, and I. I loved things about Richard, but at the end of the day, I didn't feel like he was really a very healed or integrated person. He 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 mocked me for believing that psychotherapy could be part of a spiritual life. And I've written about that and wrote about it in Grounded Spirituality. And I just don't think that, I don't actually believe Ram Das was a spiritual person according to the way that I define spirituality, which as, as reality, because I think that he was sort of specialized in particular realms and perspectives through the Hindu uh, lens but had omitted all kinds of other unresolved aspects of his psyche. Yeah.
0: Who has, who have you met is the most integrated whole person or examples?
2: I felt that Alexander Lowen was the bioenergetic guy was closer to something I would call spiritual, but I, I don't know about anything about enlightenment or any of those things. I have a friend, Philip Shepard, who you might want to talk to, who wrote Radical Wholeness, whose work is brilliant. And I think he's really working to integrate all aspects of the human experience in his teachings. I love Andrew Harvey's work, but most of the people in my field are mostly imitative and just looking for the next book deal. And so not really called to something. And Philip is called to something. I know that I felt called to it. Andrew's called to things. And, and I think that's important. And Andrew Harvey was one of the people who was first deconstructing all of these patriarchal spiritualities. He's often said it may help that he's a gay man. So he, he has a more integrated perspective on spirituality through a different lens. But um, yeah, I mean, what would it feel like for us to accept the possibility that nobody's even gotten close to what I'm talking about yet? Mm -hmm. And that, that we just been fucking around and wasting time for thousands of years. And that, and that, you know, that we need a whole new bevy of models available to us uh, to be even begin to understand what it means to be fully here, emblazoned on our path, where presence meets purpose, we're vital, we're alive, we're rooted, we're grounded, we're self-loving, but not narcissistic. Where you know, we're that perfect sacred balance between all these gender aspects. It's inclusive and integrated. I mean, I just think I think it's possible you know Andrew calls it in golden mint in his recent book and I think it's possible but I think we have to stop believing anything we've been told first and start critically reviewing everything we've been told and asking ourselves is any of this even true and that takes courage you know like, what's true about any of this? I mean, was Ram Dass enlightened? Why is that true? Every one of those guys, when I made this film, it's in the film, I would ask them, i go, I don't get it. You guys are saying you're enlightened, but you have no integrity. So I'm confused. How can you be enlightened and have no integrity? And these guys all had the same answer. And not Ram Dass. He had a different answer. They all said, oh, Jeff, enlightenment comes to who it comes to. I said, well, that's convenient. So you don't have to deal with all your fucked up, narcissistic aspects and you can claim to be an enlightened master so they're talking about a notion of realization that's not what i'm talking about where you can be brilliant in one thing and see something clearly on a very high level but every other year part of your life is a mess and i think in means that we have to as ram das said in karmageddon be able to justify ourselves on every level of awareness yeah mm-hmm. not just great in one aspect and a mess in every other aspect and I think that's the direction Anna's talking about where you know it's the direction of the mother where we're able to be in the messiness and the juiciness and the chaos and the order and the everything of aliveness and hold it in our consciousness without having to bypass any aspect of it
1: yeah yeah I'm curious. I don't, I don't know why this, this is like come up. One of the things that you mentioned in one of the quote books, I can't remember which one it was, but it was, you talked about how your parts are your best friend, right? Sure. And so, and so I, I'm assuming you're talking about IFS in that particular case. Uh, no, but what, can you explain that more, what you were talking about? Cause right. the reason I mentioned it is because like that whole idea, especially in IFS, but like that whole idea of, of there are no, bad parts of us if we can and and if we can look at all those different parts and we can say hey let's get you out of this role let's get it so that you're on track you know so that you are doing something that you love let us be self-led beings that are fully integrated with all our different parts and no parts has to come forward and and be an asshole right like it's you're responsible for all the internal family that exists but yes go ahead sorry Ryan. yeah
2: So when I was young, I was naming my parts. I was calling them adaptations and disguises and eventually defenses. So my warrior self, Captain America, my heady part was Encyclopedia Brown. I was naming them. And I wrote a bit about that in Soul Shaping. And I understood that these were adaptations, these were defenses, these were things that showed up to allow me to survive in very uncomfortable circumstances. But that eventually, my question was, but what's my soul's journey? My soul's journey can't just be about adaptations, defenses, and disguises, or parts. What is on a core level my encoded path, what James Hillman called the innate image. So my work in my life was to differentiate those protection mechanisms and patterns from who is Jeffrey Lauren Brown. Why is he here? And, and that's, you know, parts work existed long before IFS, but Mm. then Richard developed one particular model for it. And I was, I was more interested in the parts work as a, as a soul question, what's my soul's journey and how confused am I getting by attaching to these various parts that have served their purposes? Mm. Yeah. And then you want to get to the point where your parts are consciously utilized as opposed to automatically and unconsciously activated, right? So you choose it for express purpose, then you come back to rather than you're being by all of those outer parts.
0: Okay. I had this dream the other, like two nights ago that I was in a huge auditorium with all these people in it. And I look around and I'm like, oh shit, I'm in a dream. So these are all my parts. These are all me. And I was like looking around the room and being like, these are all my fucking parts.
2: So Anna, name some of your <laughs> name some of your parts for us.
0: Well, I haven't named them like you guys have. Oh, I have the dragon,
1: and you also have the uh, pep girl.
0: Oh, I have the cheerleader. You have which, the
1: cheerleader, uh, which is
0: the go me, I'm amazing. Nice. I have the dragon who likes to destroy everything around her. I have the romance cop. Well, she's gone pretty much, but I had the romance cop who liked to say what you should and shouldn't do in a relationship. Oh, <laughs> what you should, right. how you should and shouldn't express love. Uh, The Romance Cop.
2: Officer Romance. Officer Romance. But yes,
0: anyways, the auditorium was freaky because I was like, there's a lot of parts. Yeah.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, my part, Anna named my part one of my parts steel magnolia and she's the people pleaser who's like very southern and is always making people feel comfortable the steel magnolia i have a lot of really angry parts i have a lot of really angry parts that like don't like to be disturbed like the one that doesn't like to be disturbed when i'm in like a hyper fixated place like is gets really angry and i have the part i have the part that's always so tender-hearted whenever anything that i do gets rejected right like it's like it's it's like classic rejection wound part i i actually think i have an Mm. entire cluster that i've been trying to kind of get into Mm. that is all around the rejection wound in particular as well as around the fear of intimacy both of those and i love what you say about into me see
2: well that's yeah that's a known thing that strange little term forever i mean it's true really but yeah 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 Yeah.
0: can Uh, you explain that
2: well, people just say, I mean, it's, I've heard this forever. Intimacy is into me. See, that's all it means.
0: Oh, to see inside of me.
2: Yeah. That's true. Would be true. Intimacy. Yeah.
0: Nice. What about yes. you? What are some of your parts? Oh, you said captain America and like yeah. Brown. Yeah. I, you
2: know, I, I haven't, I haven't, I should spend some time now currently asking that question. I I'm going to, maybe I will actually, it was sort of I, like an old thing I wrote about and taught about and d- dwelled on. and But now it's like, uh, I feel pretty integrated now. But of course I have, you know, um, parts that show up.
0: Have you read Existential Kink? No. I've, been, no. I've been playing with that lately. And that is really fun. That is um, looking at anything you resist and then trying to get off on it. Not necessarily sexually, but you look at it and you're like, Oh, I've been betrayed. I hate being betrayed. I don't want to be betrayed. And then getting in touch with a part of you that wanted to be betrayed.
2: Well, I, I think of a woman who's kidnapped by ISIS and raped repeatedly by a number of men over the period of a month. I don't have the audacity to tell her that on some level she wanted that.
0: No, but in that case, we could say that on a cosmic conscious level, maybe we've all contributed to that because it couldn't exist without us all on some level contributing to it, maybe
2: it was a little spiritual (laughs) bypassy a little yeah well a lot actually
0: a lot (laughs) well yeah I mean I guess in those kind of cases where it's a horrible horrible thing happening
2: yeah needless suffering we'd call it right needless
0: suffering then what you just throw that out of the of the
2: well I think we have to allow for it if you've lived on this planet you've noticed there's some needless suffering going on and there may be a lesson but There isn't always a lesson, and I don't think every victim has a responsibility to learn some wonderful lesson from a horrible experience. They may decide that there's a lesson to be learned, but I don't want to project that belief onto them. And I get that we all contributed on some level to the creation of this nuthouse, but I don't like to go so far there. I like to stay localized and focused on the event itself because... The whole spiritual bypass movement is telling people that their feelings and experiences are an illusion and meanwhile those experiences are in their bodies and wake them up at night and they jump off bridges so it can't be completely an illusion right, right.
0: well yeah exactly on one level it's definitely not an
1: illusion yeah it's interesting you say that too because you know we, we talk about the kind of different levels of reality like a parent and then the subtle levels of reality <laughs> that exist and for me i got caught for years in this course of miracles um,
2: I call it acid—a course in dissociation. Yeah.
1: Uh, except for.
2: Mm, there's always some wisdoms.
1: There's definitely a lot of wisdom for sure. me. What, what was the wisdom for me in the Course in Miracles? Was I got stuck because I was like, "It's all an illusion. So what's what's the fucking point?" Like. What's yeah. The point good, question. Anything, right? good question. Good like, question. Yeah. Except point?
2: except they're happy to collect the funds that went towards the purchase of the book, so it wasn't all an illusion. <laughs> Somebody but, got rich.
1: But the point being that like, if it's all an illusion and if we can forgive the fuck out of the world and then all of a sudden it starts to disappear, like, isn't that great? But what, what came down to, what it came down to is that I started to recognize that behind everything was actually love. And that was my first glimpse at the mother. So without the course in miracles, and I still practice it because Mm -hmm. I still, I, -hmm. it's -hmm. like one of the fastest and best ways I can really get to understand the love behind everything. Mm. Nice. But without that very key thing you get stuck you can get stuck and just thinking everything is an illusion and that is so detrimental to your well-being it's of your whole being
2: right well that's well that would yeah. probably be what we call mental illness at some stage right the yeah. belief that nothing is real is mental illness because yeah. it's not true it's preposterous um, but at the same time sometimes our perspective on things is illusory and i think that's an important distinction doesn't have to be that everything's an illusion but certainly we see things through a very illusory lens at times and our work is to come back into reality
1: interesting very good anna do you have any last questions for
2: Jeff?
0: i I want to know what you're up to are you writing a book are you giving sessions you're maybe going to do a podcast like what is on your horizon for our listeners
2: so i'm developing my teaching model the Enrealment method and i'm supposed to start teaching at Shift Network in June, a course that emanates from that. I will start the podcast as soon as this other thing is resolved. I do sessions off JeffBrown.co. I have a bunch of download courses: Abandonment Wound, Narcissistic Wound, Inner Child, Sacred Feminine Rising, off of JeffBrown.co. I teach the writing courses coming up in April. It's very busy at SoulShapingInstitute.com, and I'm going to write an enrealment-oriented book in the autumn after I get the course methodology in place, and that'll probably be the next book that I write. So wonderful that's,
1: that's great wonderful. thank you, do you have lots of
2: stuff nice, going on
1: lots of stuff do you have any final words that you want to share with us today
2: yeah just no? don't don't pay attention to what anybody in the spiritual world says about anything other than this which is um grant yourself permission to heal and allow that to be the door opener to this thing called the sacred life wonderful
1: thank you so much thank you thank you thanks so ladies much. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode with Jeff Brown. You can find him at jeffbrown.co for more information. And remember... Humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell you all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer... One girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. Book a free call with me at www.chriswilsey.com forward slash discover.